Good morning, church. If you would, go with me to 1 Samuel chapter 15. First Samuel chapter 15, looking at the life of Saul this morning. I won't read the entire chapter, but we will be looking at most of the chapter. I want to just read a few verses here for us, beginning in verse 1. Hear the word of the Lord. And Samuel said to Saul, the Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people Israel. Now, therefore, listen to the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I have noted what Amalek did to Israel in opposing them on the way when they came up out of Egypt. Now go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all that they have. Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. And then look down at verse 8. And he took Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive and devoted to destruction all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep and of the oxen and of the fattened calves and the lambs and all that was good and would not utterly destroy them. All that was despised and worthless, they devoted to destruction. And then lastly, down in verse 24, Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned, for I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord and your words because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. Now, therefore, please pardon my sin and return with me that I may bow before the Lord. And Samuel said to Saul, I will not return with you, for you have rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. As Samuel turned to go away, Saul seized the skirt of his robe and it tore. And Samuel said to him, The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day and has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. And also the glory of Israel will not lie or have regret, for he is not a man that he should have regret. Then he said, I have sinned, yet honor me now before the elders of my people and before Israel and return with me that I may bow before the Lord your God. So Samuel turned back after Saul, and Saul bowed before the Lord. Let's pray one more time. Father, we need the help of your Spirit to help us to see what you have revealed, to obey it, to submit to it, to bring our lives into conformity to the will of God as revealed in Scripture. And so help us now to hear from you, Lord. And change us and sanctify us in truth. Lord, your word is truth. And we ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're continuing our series on common problems from Old Testament narratives. And this morning and next Sunday, we're going to be looking at the life of King Saul from 1 Samuel. And I originally sat down this week with the intention of talking about envy from Saul's life and anger and how Saul gets jealous at David, and how that deep-seated jealousy and bitterness turns into Saul's desire to kill David, and eventually his demise, and I do want to get into that next week. But when I sat down and looked at 1 Samuel 15, uh, this topic just seemed to scream at me. And so I want to preach this morning about the fear of man and the problem of people-pleasing. The fear of man and the problem of people-pleasing. 
Because when we read the life of Saul, what we see is that Saul has issues long before David kills Goliath and before he gets envious of David and becomes cynical and starts trying to kill him. And particularly, Saul is prone to fearing other people and caring about what others think to the point that he is willing to disobey the clear commands of the Lord. And so the fear of man is a biblical concept and a phrase that you will not hear very much in popular culture. You won't hear this term in a psychology class. No one gets diagnosed with the fear of man. However, the problem that we are going to see this morning in the life of King Saul is still very much a problem today in the world. And yes, it is a problem in the church, in all of our lives. We've just sort of come up with different titles to talk about the phrase, the fear of man, that sound a little bit softer. So here are a few common ones. Peer pressure, right? You you think about the high school student who doesn't really want to take a drink, uh, but he does because he wants to be approved and and praised by a certain group or a certain person. Uh, Insecurity or lack of self-esteem, viewing oneself negatively and harshly because of a lack of approval from others, right? And this gets into self-image and exercise culture and all of these things. Codependency, going to great lengths, even to one's detriment to please another person or to be accepted by that person. And here's a new one on me, social anxiety disorder. Listen to what the Mayo Clinic says about this on its webpage. It says, in social anxiety disorder also called social phobia, everyday interactions cause significant anxiety, self-consciousness, and embarrassment. Listen, because you fear being scrutinized or judged negatively by others. Non-confrontational. Obviously not people who cover sin with love. We're not talking about people who uh, bear with the sins of others and, and remain patient before they just point the finger at everybody else, uh, but someone who won't stand up for what is right because they fear the disapproval of another. Or, this is very common, people who fear speaking the truth or doing what needs to be done because they fear the emotional explosion or the outburst of anger or wrath that might come if they do. You know, maybe you know someone, or maybe this has been your own experience, you know, someone who walks on eggshells around a certain person all the time for fear that that person will explode. If I say the wrong thing or do something that they don't like, they're going to get angry and yell and scream and slam. And just as an aside, uh, when we are overly prone to the fear of man, we open ourselves up to being manipulated. In order to exist, master manipulators need people who fear man. That's how cult leaders exist. That's how gang leaders exist. And then what I've used this morning, uh, people pleaser. Again, we're not talking about denying self for the sake of others. We're not talking about esteeming others more highly than ourselves and loving others and, and bestowing love upon another. That's biblical love. That's biblical Christianity. What I'm talking about is people who are so driven by making others happy 
and so driven by uh, causing people not to be upset at them that they are willing to neglect clear biblical commands and neglect things that the Bible treats more important in order to please someone. And all these are packaged a little bit differently, but the root problem is the same. It's the fear of man. The fear of man can be manifested in countless different ways, but ultimately the problem is one of idolatry, an idolatry of self and wanting to be praised, wanting to be thought highly of, wanting to be approved by everyone, and an idolatry of people, placing far too high a view on what everyone else thinks, far too high a view on everyone else's happiness or perceived happiness. Ed Welch in his book, When People Are Big and God is Small, Overcoming Peer Pressure, Codependency, and the Fear of Man says this. He says, the fear of man can be summarized this way. We replace God with people. Instead of a biblically guided fear of the Lord, we fear others. And brothers and sisters, just like last week's topic on sexual temptation, this hits at every single one of us. This is so prone to who we are as sinful creatures. You know, this this doesn't have to be overt. This can be very subtle. You may be a very confident person, but still have a deep desire that others would think highly of you. It can be hard to distinguish this, the fear of man from pride and the desire to be praised and exalted because all of this is so intertwined in our fallen Hearts, And so I think the Lord has something to say to all of us. And for others, this may be a besetting sin. This may be something that you constantly wrestle with. You may be functionally enslaved to what others think about you, whether others are happy with you or not. Maybe you just can't stomach the fact that for one second, someone may be upset at you. So you become anxious and afraid and become sinfully passive. Or maybe you're so afraid that people will think that you're dumb, that you justify just never saying anything at all and remaining isolated and keeping biblical love away from others. Guys, this issue is so deep and there's such a complexity to this particular sin that we could spend hours and hours and hours just parsing out all the motivations and all the different aspects of this Sin. This is one of those issues like pride that's going to take an entire life for us to fully realize and fully point, uh, put to death. Our hearts are prone to this and it shows its head in many ways. But this morning, I want to give you four points from this text on the fear of man in Saul's life and make some application as we go and then end with some biblical help for overcoming the fear of man. So number one, the fear of man is rooted in disobedience. The fear of man is rooted in disobedience. Look back at verse two and verse three. Thus says the Lord. So this is a command from the Lord. I have noted what Amalek did to Israel and opposing them on the way when they came up out of Egypt. Now go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all that they have. But again, if we flip over to verse 9, but Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep and of the oxen and of the fattened calves and the lambs and all that was 
good. And God says through Samuel, I regret that I have made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commands. God commands King Saul to put the Amalekites to the total ban ban because of their opposition to God's people, because of their wickedness and their idolatry and their evil living. And yet Saul fails to carry out fully what God commands him to do. And he spares the king, Agag, and he spares the best of the animals. And notice God does not commend Saul for partial obedience. But rather he rebukes him for disobedience and rejects King Saul from being king over Israel. And look at what Saul says in verse 24. I have sinned, for I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord and your words because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. Now, we don't know how genuine Saul is here. We don't know if he really feared the people, but what this narrative reveals And what the rest of King Saul's life reveals is that Saul ultimately cares more about the praise and approval of others than he does about obeying God. This gets into the notion of peer pressure, right? Even if Saul's men did pressure him into keeping the best of the animals, he should have rebuked them as the king and put his foot down and said, no, 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 no. I'm the king. The Lord has spoken He's given clear commands to wipe out everything, and that's what we are going to do, whether you like it or not. We will obey the Lord. That's not what happens. Saul allows the people to take the best of the sheep and the oxen, and Samuel says to Saul in verse 23, for rebellion is as the sin of divination, and presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. I mean, it's shocking how hard the Lord comes down on Saul right here in this narrative. This shows us how seriously God takes his word and how seriously he takes his holiness. And I I want to just land here and make this very clear, brothers and sisters. The fear of man is sin. The fear of man is sin. We, you know, we often talk about people-pleasing or codependency in a way that makes it seem that these are victim statuses. We often view sins like this as less problematic than others, and modern psychology and these labels lessen the blow uh, to the point that we oftentimes don't even treat issues like this as sin. And we view ourselves as victims, and it's everybody else's fault. And we treat other issues like this, you know, anxiety and fear and obsessive compulsion and all these other categories are very similar. But brothers and sisters, hear me. It is impossible to get real victory over this issue and over any sin unless we call it what the Bible calls it and acknowledge it as sin. Because here's the thing, if we make ourselves victims and try to lessen the blow and fail to take ownership over our transgression, we actually have to rely on insufficient coping mechanisms. And we have to rely on insufficient solutions that in the long run cannot produce biblical freedom or biblical life that honors God and bears fruit. But if we agree with God, and if we acknowledge that the fear of man is sin and that we are guilty of idolizing ourselves, 
and idolizing others. There's freedom if we admit that we have failed to obey him and worship him alone as God. While that may sound harsh and offensive to the modern mind, what it actually does is it opens the door to the actual solution, to a sufficient solution. Because when we acknowledge our sin and confess it as sin, now the gospel can come to bear. Now there can be real forgiveness because Jesus nailed that sin to the cross. Instead of blame shifting, we can be forgiven. And instead of coping, we have access to supernatural power that puts to death the deeds of the body. And I've seen people, and I've experienced this myself, and I've had the privilege of walking with people with struggling fear of man, paralyzing anxiety, panic attacks, and all these very difficult issues that that are complex and confusing, but underneath it all, they confess there is sin in my heart. There are wrong beliefs, wrong motives that are there that I need to repent of. And then they begin to experience freedom and victory because they've agreed with God. And there's forgiveness and there's repentance. So if you find yourself right now saying, I'm a people pleaser. I do things that I know I shouldn't do because I am afraid of rejection. Or maybe you find yourself constantly shying away from the necessary conflict. One of the worst things you can do is make an excuse and say that there is something wrong with you and that you will just have to cope with this for the rest of your life. The first step is to humble yourself before the Lord and acknowledge your sin confess it as sin and receive the total forgiveness that Christ has purchased on the cross and then let the gospel come to bear on that issue. And now some of you may be saying, Pastor, I agree with that conceptually, but that just seems really harsh and it seems like it lacks compassion. And I want to acknowledge that I'm in the pulpit right now. I'm preaching. If I were in the counseling room dealing with someone struggling with this, I would soften my tone. And we need to be wise and know when to have compassion and to listen and to be patient. But the content of my message would not change very much. The gospel is the only hope. It's the power of God unto salvation. 1 Timothy 1.15, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save who? Sinners came into the world to save sinners. Number two, the fear of man is often masked as humility. At verse 15, Saul said, they have brought them from the Amalekites for the people spared the best of the sheep and of the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God and the rest we have devoted to destruction. Then Samuel said to Saul, stop. I will tell you what the Lord said to me this night. And he said to him, speak. And Samuel said, though you are little in your own eyes, are you not the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king of Israel. So Samuel rebukes Saul for not leading the people the way that God prescribed. And he rebukes him for having this low view of himself that actually hinders Saul from being a godly leader and from leading Israel the right way. 
Evidently, Saul lacks confidence to lead or he doesn't want to be confrontational with the men or something about the position of being king bothers him. Whatever it is, Saul has an unnecessarily low view of himself and his position. And remember back to the beginning of Saul's reign when when Samuel told him that he was to be the king of Israel and God commanded Samuel to anoint Saul king and he had already done that privately, but now it came to the point to do it publicly. And it says that Saul was actually hiding back by the baggage when they were supposed to anoint him king of Israel. And some people look at that and say, see, look, look at how humble Saul was at the beginning of his life. But there's a problem with that because who commanded Samuel to anoint Saul? God did. Who, Who called Saul to be king? God did. God is the one that ordained Saul to be king. Brothers and sisters, true humility never resists the will of God. True humility says, whatever my God has ordained for me is right. I will humbly come up under that. I will submit to that. And I will walk out the calling that he has given me. And I will forget myself and I will forget my goals and I will forget, forget my desires. But there seems to be a hesitancy on Saul's behalf to embrace God's will for his life. In verse 12 says that Saul set up a monument for himself. So evidently he's not that humble. And when Saul tries to blame the people for what happened, what does Samuel say? Stop. Stop it, Saul. He doesn't buy for one second this notion that because Saul was being humble, that the, that the men, the people, somehow manipulated him into taking the best of the animals. That They took advantage of him, and then they rebelled against the orders. Instead, Samuel rebukes Saul for not standing up and putting the men in their place because that's what he had the authority to do. So what's the application? Well, it is, it is very easy to convince ourselves that we are being humble or that we are just being nice or that we want to just be loving and we misuse the fruit of the Spirit when in reality we're afraid. In our inclusive, coddled culture, this notion of niceness is exalted as a chief virtue in our society. And we can point fingers at the culture all day, but guys, this affects us in the church. How many times have you struggled with this question? Should I say something here? Because if I say something, they may be offended. They may get mad at me. They may push back at me. They may think I'm weird. They may cancel me. Now I confess that I do not jive with this idea that Christians should just be rude and belittling and overly sarcastic. You know, some Christians are doing that, using this uh, really kind of crude rhetoric to make appeal and to make a point. There's a lot of Christians doing that. I think there's a general ethos in the New Testament that's that of meekness and gentleness and humility. However, let us never think that we are more humble than Jesus or more loving than Jesus. And listen to how the Pharisees describe Jesus in Matthew twenty two sixteen. 16. They say, teacher, we know that you're true and teach the way of God truthfully, and you do not care about anyone's opinion. 
for you are not swayed by anyone's appearance. Literally, the translation is, translation is, you don't look at men's faces and change what you say. Jesus stood up as a prophet and pronounced woes on the Pharisees and the scribes. And Jesus was the most loving man to ever live. You know, one of the reasons the sin of the fear of man is so subtle is because we are commanded all over the Bible to be humble and to be kind and to be meek and to be slow to speak. We're commanded to put away obscene talk and to speak in such a way that builds up. It's true. Romans 12, 18 says, if possible, as far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. We're to be peacemakers. And in some sense, we are to be people pleasers insofar as we deny ourselves and live sacrificially for the good of others. But here's where the rubber meets the road. Are we compromising on God's word to keep peace? Are we neglecting clear commands to make people happy? And this is a question especially relevant for families. If we are failing to obey God, then whatever measure of humility we may think we are demonstrating is actually a false humility that is rooted in self. And this leads to the next and a very similar point. Number three, the fear of man is failing to steward God's call for our lives. Verse 17 again, Samuel says, the Lord anointed you king over Israel. In other words, Samuel is saying, God, Saul, God has called you to be his representative to the people. He, he has called you to be his vice regent. He's called you to lead the people, not be led by them. He's given you authority to exercise these commands. And in Saul's passivity, he spares King Agag and he allows the men to take the best of the spoil. And Saul fails to steward his kingly authority. He fails to carry out his God-ordained duty. He fails to heed the word of the Lord and obey it fully. And so when we talk about people-pleasing or insecurity or, self, or low self-esteem, you know, we don't typically picture very influential leaders, do we? Uh, we typically think of the gentle, soft-spoken woman. Maybe we think about the teenager who, is, uh, who thinks that she's overweight or we t- Typically think of the naturally timid man who's very content to just sit back and, and be in the background and not uh, be up in front of people. We, we typically think of those types of people. But here's the thing. Leaders are extremely prone to the fear of man. It just looks a little bit different. This is the pastor who holds back or won't say certain things in his sermons for fear of offending the biggest givers because he knows If one or two families lead the church, that's his salary. And he has to support his family, right? You know, you think about all that's gone on the last few, last three years. Thousands of Christians have left churches that they've loved for years because their pastors would not speak about certain things and would not take a stand on certain issues or against dangerous teachings. And I'll be the first to say that Christians, especially pastors, don't need to let people bully them into speaking before they are ready. That's the fear of man also. But as the months and the years go on, leaders have a responsibility to shepherd the flock 
through difficult doctrinal issues, through difficult cultural times. And that often involves saying things that will bring backlash. Or you have the pastor or leader who all he does is talk about the culture. And he abandons the normal exposition of Scripture. And all he does is just speak about what's out there because he wants to be accepted by a certain group of men who like that. That's the fear of man just on the opposite side. We are called to preach the whole counsel of God. This is the husband who, for fear of making his wife upset, passively sits back while her desires and emotions lead the family or allows his children to get away every time with something to avoid their outbursts. This is the sports coach who shows favoritism to certain players because he cares more about winning than having integrity. This is the parent who is so concerned about being obeyed in public or being perceived as a good parent that they use undignified means to get submission out of their children. And here's one that's very specific to Christians. What about when we refrain from sharing the gospel? Or we shy away from carrying out our convictions in public because we are afraid of what people will think. These are all ways that the fear of man keeps us from stewarding God's call on our lives, especially in the lives of those who have positions of leadership. And while we're talking about failing to steward power and authority for God's glory, I think this is a good place to acknowledge that there is a physical aspect of the fear of man, and it is possible to be afraid of someone because they have threatened to hurt that person or have hurt that person. And this often leads abuse victims to remain silent and not bring others into their situation because they are afraid of what will happen to them. And so let me just say publicly that if you are in that situation where you are being physically harmed or being threatened with physical harm or you are being coerced with sinful means like lying and blackmailing and threatening in order for that person to get what they want, please bring someone into that situation. And I just want to say that both pastors of this church are open to that and welcome you to come to us and disclose those things to us. If you know someone in this church who is in that situation, the best thing you can do is bring that into the light and expose that darkness And as hard as it may seem, the godliest response would be to say, I will no longer fear what that person might do to me. I'm bringing this into the light. And we have very mature Christians in this church who will hear you and who will step into that. We have city group leaders and their wives. We have biblical counselors and their spouses and many other brothers and sisters who would welcome you in that situation. God never commands us, especially leaders, to sin in order to get what they want. He does not condone the weaponization of emotion or physical harm or verbal sin in order to coerce others into getting our way. And there is a particular emphasis in Scripture on leaders who abuse their God-invested authority that's supposed to be used for good and for His glory when they use it for selfish gain. And God comes down very hard on that in the Bible. And he calls that injustice. Number four, 
God-fearing man is being more concerned about what others think than what God thinks. Fearing man is being more concerned about what others think than what God thinks. Verse 25. Now, therefore, please pardon my sin and return with me that I may bow before the Lord. That's what Saul says. And then in verse 30. Then he said, Saul, I have sinned, yet honor me now before the elders of my people and before Israel and return with me that I may bow before the Lord. Here, Saul sort of half-heartedly acknowledges that he has sinned. He doesn't cover it up completely, but what he really wants is to be honored before everybody else. That's what he's ultimately after. He knows he's done wrong. He knows Samuel is upset, but what ultimately controls him is what everybody else thinks, except for the Lord. What's most important to Saul is that he be honored in everyone else's eyes. And there's no genuine repentance here. In contrast, that with Saul's successor, King David, because Saul sa- or Samuel says in verse 28, the Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day and has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. How, how is David better than Saul? Surely it doesn't mean that Saul is a sinner and David is perfect. I mean, guys, meditate on this for a moment. In 2 Samuel 12, after David has committed adultery with Bathsheba and married her, after having her husband Uriah killed, Nathan the prophet rebukes David and exposes his sin. And what does David say in response to Nathan? I have sinned against the Lord. I've sinned against the Lord. He doesn't make excuses. He doesn't blame shift. He owns his sin against the Lord. 2 Samuel 12, 15 to 16, And the Lord afflicted the child that Uriah's wife bore to David, and he became sick. David therefore sought God on behalf of the child. And David fasted and went in and lay all night before the ground, seeking the Lord. And after David found out that the child had died, It says, then David arose from the earth and washed and anointed himself and changed his clothes. And he went into the house of the Lord and worshiped. Now, when you compare David's sin to Saul's sin, from our vantage point, it seems like David's is worse. Commits adultery with another man's wife while while that man is at war. That man happens to be one of the most loyal men to David and to Israel. And then he tries to put the child that she has conceived onto him. He won't have anything to do with it because he has too much integrity. So he goes back to war and David has Joab put him in the front of the, of the fighting so that he will be killed. And then David marries Bathsheba and tries to cover it all up. I mean, that's horrible. It seems worse than what Saul has done. So what makes David better than Saul is not that his sin is less grievous. What makes David greater than Saul is that when David sins, he repents and he acknowledges that his sin is against the Lord and against the Lord alone. He humbles himself before the Lord. He seeks the Lord's approval, not man's. He ultimately cares most about getting right with the Lord, not being honored in the presence of others. 
And this, I think, is how David is said to be a man after God's own heart. Have you, have you ever thought about that? How is David a man after God's own heart? You know, with all his questionable moments and all his failures, David's controlling desire in all of his life, even with his failures, is to be right in the eyes of the Lord. Whereas Saul's controlling desire is to be right in the eyes of man. To be honored in the eyes of man. To be approved by man to the neglect of God. And this plague Saul for the rest of his life. Fearing man is deadly. It was deadly for Saul and it's deadly today. And what's so deadly about this sin is that it blinds us from fearing the one that we actually should fear. It so preoccupies people with caring about the judgment of others that they neglect to fear the judgment of God. So Jesus says to his his disciples in Matthew 10, 26 to 33, so have no fear of them. For nothing is covered that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. What I tell you in the dark, say in the light. And what you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops. And do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not. Therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. And listen, so everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But everyone who denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. This is very serious, brothers and sisters. And the good news is that there is hope. And that there is a solution. So I want to just conclude now by talking about what what do we do with the fear of man? And how do we overcome the fear of man? Well, the first thing is to acknowledge that we can't overcome the fear of man in our own strength. And in our own flesh. We have all been born into sin. And we, by our very disposition, love the praise and acceptance of others. We love approval. We love thinking highly about ourselves. And we love when others think highly about us. This is part of who we are as fallen creatures. We need someone to live an entire life totally free from the fear of man. We need someone to live an entire life devoted to pleasing God. And Jesus Christ has done this. John 8, 28 to 29. So Jesus said to them, when you have lifted up the son of man, then you will know that I am he and that I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the father has taught me. And he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. Jesus lived his entire life free from the cares of others. from the the praise of others. He lived his entire life showing no partiality. He was fully confident in his father and in his father alone. And he died in our place to set us free from the fear of man and from all of our sin. So we must first look to the person 
in the work of Jesus Christ and rest in his sufficient work on our behalf. But with that being said, I do think this text is very helpful for Christians who are leaning into Jesus Christ and his gospel, who are resting in his finished work, but are seeking to put to death daily the fear of man. And I want to just linger lastly on some application from verses 32 and 33. And there's some graphic imagery here, but I think that there is valuable truth for us to see. Verse 32. Then Samuel said, bring here to me Agag, the king of the Amalekites. And Agag came to him cheerfully. Agag said, surely the bitterness of death is past. And Samuel said, as your sword has made women childless, so shall your mother be childless among women. And Samuel hacked Agag to pieces before the Lord in Gilgal. Now, obviously, we must understand a passage like this from our new covenant context. And we must understand the context of the old covenant. And we know that God has not given the church the sword to advance his kingdom. He has given the state the sword. But God has called the church rather to preach the gospel to all people and to build the church and to call them to repent and believe in Jesus Christ. And he's given the church not the sword, but the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And he's given us the authority to bring people into the church and to remove them from the church via church discipline. Uh, So we get that. But here's the point I want to make. Samuel's highest priority is obeying the command of the Lord. Samuel here, here carries out God's wrath against the evil king Agag, who was justly put to death for his sins. And here's just a side note. Evidently, Saul did not put to death all the Amalekites because they, they raised their head later in 2 Samuel and David has to subdue them. And then what is really interesting is that later in the Bible, hundreds of years later in the book of Esther, there's a man named Haman who wants to annihilate all the Jews and he wants to kill a man named Mordecai that God raises up to deliver the people of Israel. This is all in the book of Esther. And Esther 2.5 tells us that Mordecai was from the line of Kish, from the tribe of Benjamin, which is the same line that Saul is from. But in Esther 3.1, it tells us that Haman is an Agagite from the line of Agag. So hundreds of years after Saul spares King Agag, his descendants are still trying to annihilate the people of God, still opposing the people of God still making war with the tribe of Benjamin and Saul's own family. So what's the application of us in our, for us in our fight against sin? We must have an attitude of total annihilation. Because if we spare just a little bit of our sin for later on, just in case, I'm going to leave just a little bit, just in case I need it, just in case I want it later, it will raise its head and it will try to destroy us. Samuel's controlling motivation is to obey the word of the Lord, not to please people. And it's not a halfway obedience or an 80% obedience, because here's the thing, Saul obeyed some of the Lord's commands. He really did, but he didn't fully obey. He destroyed the Amalekites, but he allowed the oxen and the sheep to be spared and he justifies the the decision. And he says, we spared the best of the sheep and the oxen so that we could sacrifice to the Lord. 
we had to have something to worship the Lord with. So we spared the best of the oxen and the sheep. Guys, it's so easy to justify, justify disobedience by wrapping it up in religious language. And, and, and all of this, especially when it comes to this issue of the fear of man. But what did God command Saul back in verse 3? Kill all the oxen, all the sheep, all the animals. Wipe it all out. Destroy everything. God never calls us to use the end to justify a means that he has not prescribed. He calls us to faithfulness. The Lord would have provided animals to worship him. He didn't want Saul to break his commands to justify that end. He wants faithfulness. And he calls us to faithfulness. And in the terms of the fear of man, that means if people get upset, we trust God with that. If people turn their backs on us, we trust God with that. If our families disown us, we trust God with that. We stay faithful to the Lord. We obey the commands of the Lord. Verse 22 shows this so clearly. And Samuel said, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in, as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to listen than the fat of rams. Brothers and sisters, ultimately, if we want to be free from the fear of man, we need this truth to be our deepest conviction to obey God, to hold fast to his word, to be faithful to him is better, far better than any horizontal pleasure, any horizontal benefit. And if we think this way, I trust that by the help of his spirit, we will grow in a greater confidence in the Lord and we will put to death the fear of the man, fear of man, amen? Let me transition us now to the table. If you're a visitor here with us and you're a believer in Jesus Christ and you've been baptized in water and you have entered into a local church where you're serving and you could take the supper at that church, we would uh, just welcome you to come to the table with us. And if not, we would ask that you refrain. But in that bulletin that you have, there's some prayers that you can pray while we come to the table. As you come, it is so easy to allow the enemy to condemn us. It is so easy to allow all of our failures in this area and in many other areas to cloud our minds and to keep us from wanting to come. But, but we don't come to this table because we are perfect. We don't come to this table because we have arrived. We come to this table because the king invites us to come. Amen? And so I would just encourage you to take a few moments to pray, confess sin if you need to, but quickly renew your minds in the goodness of Jesus Christ. Renew your minds in the gospel. And when you're ready, come and take the elements and we'll take it together. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have so clearly spoken to us on this topic. And we pray, Lord, that as we leave this place today, that we would grow more fully in confidence in you, that we would seek to please you and obey you, and that we would die to the sinful fear of man. 
And we ask, Lord, for your help. And we thank you for your son who did this perfectly so that we might have salvation. We bless you, Father, and we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.